Before I uh, uh, turn to the passage this morning that we want to study together, I want to tell you about a dream I had last night. And I just, uh, I guess I feel fortunate that the Lord has, at least in my case, not chosen to speak to me in dreams because I'd get a little worried after this one. I dreamed, it's a nightmare actually, I dreamed that uh, the uh, opening part of the service, the singing and so forth, took so much time that I only had five minutes to teach. And then I got up here to start teaching, and I got so tongue-tied and started stuttering that it took me almost the whole five minutes just to read the passage. And then just when I was getting ready to teach, for some reason I couldn't figure out at the time, the National Guard came into the (laughs) fireside room. And that was it. So so, uh, I felt uh, things couldn't possibly go quite that badly this morning, so I figured I'd go ahead and, and give it a try. Some of you are familiar with a well-known Christian hymn that goes uh, something like that. It it describes the life of the church as it's intended to be. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. All one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Now, Someone came along later and after evaluating the condition of the modern church, uh, rewrote the lyrics to conform to reality. Like a mighty turtle moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've always trod. We are much divided, many bodies we, strong in hope and doctrine, weak in charity. I think all of us want to be part of a church which is a a mighty army rather than a mighty turtle. And there have been a lot of suggestions that have been offered and that churches have acted on to try to cause this conversion to take place. And as I thought about what I wanted to say this morning, I jotted down some of the things that have occurred to me of of options that churches have implemented to turn their fellowships into mighty armies. They had a church which is weak and is hobbling and they want to fix the problem. So a number of them will go out and try to hire a pastor from the best seminary in the country, figuring that the theological training and equipment, that will solve our problem. Others figure that we need a new church building, preferably made out of glass. Uh, Some have opted for developing bus ministries, get extensive network of bus lines and ministries to bring people from outlying regions into our fellowship. Uh, Others think the key is getting exposure on radio and TV, uh, using the media to get the message of the gospel out. Others feel that the key is to develop an extensive missions budget, get people excited and committed to the idea of missions and raise a large uh, faith promise budget to meet that need. And some have even resorted to what, for better term, lack of better term, I call razzle-dazzle. I read about one church not too long ago that actually hired Uh, paratroopers to land on their building, church building, on Sunday morning to get the people out to their fellowship, and it it worked. They set attendance records that particular day. Now, the striking thing is if you look at the first century church, they somehow managed to get along without any of that. They had uh, none of the teachers and preachers of the early church were trained in any of the leading seminaries of their days. They had no access to media no access to buses, the parachute hadn't been invented. 
And yet, uh, somehow or other, this early church managed to start a brush fire that just swept across the whole Roman Empire. And that naturally raises the question, what did they do to, to have that kind of impact? Well, if you look at the passage in Acts uh, chapter 2 with me this morning, I think we'll get an idea. And what we'll discover is that what they did was two things, and only two things. That the secret to the success of the first century church was that they committed themselves to doing two things. It was that simple. And if we as a local body, and if the body of Christ will recapture the commitment to these two activities, then once again the church will be like a, like a mighty army expanding the kingdom across the face of the globe. Now Luke describes, I believe, these foundational activities in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want to start by looking at verse 42. And then I believe in verses 43 to 47, Luke traces at least five results that took place, five consequences, results of their commitment to these two basic activities. Let's read verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The they here, by the way, refers back to verse 41, the 3,000 souls that met the Lord on the day of Pentecost. If you remember, Jesus had been crucified on Passover and had told the disciples following his resurrection three days later to remain in Jerusalem until the promise of the Spirit came. He uh, ascended 40 days after his resurrection, and Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover. So the disciples had to raid around Jerusalem for about a week to 10 days. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descended. And they were equipped with the ability to speak in tongues. In fact, they spoke in the languages, the native languages of all of the Jews who had come from all over the Roman Empire to be in Jerusalem for the feast. And they were blown away by the fact that these uneducated Galileans were speaking, talking about the mighty works of God in their own languages from every corner of the inhabited world at that time. And as a consequence, Peter got their attention, preached a message which takes up most of chapter 2, and as a result, 3,000 new converts were added to the church that day. And prior to the day of Pentecost, there were only 120 members of this early church. So the church grew from 120 people to 3,120 in the space of a single day. Now Luke goes on to describe this church as a model church. When people talk about becoming a New Testament church or a first century church, they're talking about the life, the pattern that's described in this paragraph. And that's what makes it so useful for us to study this this morning. Now, one interesting observation I make about the fact that this model church consisted of 3,000 people is that it is possible to be big and warm at the same time. It's often felt that those are mutually exclusive options, that churches must be small in order to be intimate and, and warm. But that's clearly not the case. Here is a church which Luke uh, holds out to us as a pattern, a model church, and it was a fellowship that was large in size and yet a place where every member felt loved and accepted and cared for, uh, not a church that was guilty of insensitivity or indifference. So it's possible for us to be a fairly sizable church as we have grown to be, and yet if we're committed to the same things the early church was, we too can be characterized not just as a large church but as a warm church. Now the verb that Luke uses here, 
continually devoting, uh, has these uh, synonyms. Just look this up. I thought this was instructive to read the sort of phrases that the dictionary or the lexicon uses to get across the meaning of this verb. It can also be translated to adhere to, to persist in, to busy oneself with, to be busily engaged in, to be devoted to, to give constant attention to, and to persist obstinately in. So you clearly get the impression that these were activities that the church was committed to above all else. That no matter what else happened in their fellowship, these two things were going to take place. These were their priority activities, their priority commitments. Now the first one of these was that they were committed to the apostles' teaching, Luke tells us. Of course, in their time, they had real live apostles among them. And so they could sit at the feet of uh, Peter and John and James as they themselves taught this new fellowship of believers. And they realized that these, these apostles were not simply declaring their own ideas about life, but were passing on to them the message, the words that Jesus has, had entrusted to them. So this was the teaching of Jesus that was communicated through the apostles. And the people were devoted to learning and sitting at the feet of the apostles while they taught. And I believe that's because they were convinced that the apostles, because they taught the teaching of Jesus, had access to what Paul elsewhere calls the mysteries of God or the secret things of God, the deepest, most foundational truths about life that cannot be known unless God chooses to reveal them to us. And they realized that here is where the answers to life could be found in the teaching of the apostles. And they clung to this teaching just like a diver would cling to an air hose because it sustained them and it gave them answers to the things that puzzled them and told them how to put broken marriages back together and, and how to conquer uh, bad habits and how to reconcile broken relationships with children and relatives and so forth. And they clung to this because of uh, of the results that it was able to produce in life. Now, it strikes me that in our culture today that there is a lack of conviction that there are answers to life out there that can be depended upon. Woody Allen once said that the meaning of life is that nobody knows the meaning of life. And yet in the apostles' teaching, the early church found that that was not true, that there was a meaning to life that could be found in the teaching of Jesus communicated through the apostles. Now, the teaching of the apostles, uh, we don't have them around in live form anymore, but they committed their teaching in writing, and that's what the New Testament is. It's the teaching of the apostles in written form. So therefore, for us to imitate this commitment of the early church means for us to be committed to learning and studying and teaching the same things that the apostles taught. That is, what we want in our fellowship and in our church today is men and women who will teach us the same things that the apostles taught, who will teach us what the apostles taught. And this is uh, one of the best cases, I think, that you can make for expository Bible teaching. If you've been around here for a while, you realize that that's the style of teaching that we're committed to here at Cole going through book by book, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse if necessary, line by line, word by word if necessary, in order to draw out the meaning that the apostles invested these writings with. So that's the kind of teaching that will do it. Uh, and this is what keeps a preacher, for example, from simply dwelling on his pet themes and, 
and riding his pet hobby horses if he himself was committed to teach his congregation the same thing that the apostles taught. And the only way to be sure you're doing that is to do it expositorily, to proceed paragraph by paragraph and statement by statement through the whole counsel of God, leaving out nothing but touching on, on everything. And that's the commitment of our fellowship. I was curious one time about a particular TV preacher that uh, I had never uh, was unfamiliar with, had never seen any of his telecasts, and so uh, one night I decided to tune him in and remember distinctly that the uh, sermon topic for the evening came from Ephesians chapter 5, and the scriptures were read, and I remember the camera op- panned on an open Bible, and you could follow along in Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 11 as the scriptures were read. And this was an encouraging sign to me because I had not, uh, I had assumed that this man was not an expositor. So I waited eagerly to see what he would do with this text. And immediately after the passage was read, he launched off into a discussion which was sort of a hodgepodge of his own opinions about life and a good deal of it had to do with uh, politics. And he never once got back to Ephesians chapter 5. There was no reference to Paul's teaching in that uh, paragraph, no effort to explain what Paul taught in that section. But, Paul, but Luke tells us that the first commitment of the church, the first thing they were committed to, was the apostles' teaching. Now, when he says that they devoted themselves to this, it doesn't simply mean that they listened attentively, but that they obeyed what the apostles taught. They realized that when the apostles taught, they spoke with the authority of Jesus himself. So what the apostles taught about marriage, about roles in marriage, about relationships, about uh, church government, uh, these things came with the authority of Jesus himself. And it would be inconceivable for them to draw a distinction between the authority of Jesus and the authority of the apostles. What the apostles taught, they were committed to obey. So that means I think the first question we need to ask as a fellowship, each of us individually, is are we committed to study and to learn and to teach what the apostles taught? That's the first pillar of the church. Now the second pillar of the church, Luke goes on to say, is fellowship. That the second uh, activity that they were committed to above all others was fellowship. This is the Greek word koinonia, which has come over into English, translated simply as fellowship. The Greek writers use this term koinonia to refer to the marriage relationship because the relationship that's implied in this word koinonia is a relationship of intimacy and commitment. That was the second thing the church was devoted to, was to developing close, intimate relationships among its believers. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about in Galatians 6 when he says we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. That the early church was a place where people came with burdens that were too heavy uh, for them to bear and found a group of people who were willing to shoulder those burdens with them, to help them lift them so they didn't sag under the weight of those burdens. I feel the best metaphor for the church is that it is a hospital for sinners. It's a place where sinners who are bruised and discouraged and defeated and depressed can find a place where their wounds can be cleaned and can be bound up and they can be comforted and encouraged to go on about the business of living life. It struck me that churches like this, like Cole Community Church and others in our area, are like uh, hospitals, like uh, St. Luke's and St. Al's. 
But within these larger churches, there are smaller groups meeting all over these, the, the city, which are like these minor emergency centers popping up on every corner and in every neighborhood to, to provide a place where people with needs can come and have those needs attended to. Robert Frost uh, once said that home is the place where when you go there, they have to take you in. And uh, <laughs> struck me that that's what the... Uh, it's what the church ought to be like. And when people come to us, we have to take them in because we love them, their family. Now, this fellowship, Luke says, in the end of verse 42, was expressed in two ways, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. These were the two primary expressions of their fellowship, their commitment to intimate relationships. First one is the breaking of bread. Now, it's natural when we read this phrase to think of the Lord's Supper because this phrase is used in that connection. But Luke also uses it repeatedly to refer simply to common table fellowship. The breaking of bread was the signal by the head of the household that it was time to start eating. Similar uh, in many of our families that saying grace is the signal that it's time to start eating. Well, that's what the breaking of bread was. It was a signal that it was now time for the family to, to begin eating. And I think that's the way Luke is using it here. He's simply referring to the fact that it, one of the things that the church was committed to was to eating a lot of meals together. That if you'd examined the life of this early church, you would have found that they were continually eating together. In our culture, continually expressed by going out to pie and coffee together or going out to lunch after church on Sunday or inviting people over to your home on a regular basis, opening your home, having potlucks regularly as a part of your uh, growth group, that sort of thing. Uh, some of you are familiar with our Supper for Six ministry, which just started this fall. This has been a tremendous way of, of getting our people to know one another. And all of us, I think, at one time or another have experienced what it means to enjoy the uh, kind of atmosphere that meeting together with other believers around the table creates. It relaxes people, it opens them up, provides an opportunity for laughter and, and an informal atmosphere in which we can begin to develop friendships and make companions out of out of other believers. And the early church was committed to this. This was one of the expressions of their fellowship. Now, by the way, if you look at the at 1 Corinthians 11, which is uh, Paul's treatment of the Lord's Supper as it occurred in the church at Corinth, you will realize very quickly that the Lord's Supper was not what we've turned it into, which is a little ritual with little pieces of bread and cups of grape juice, but the Lord's Supper was a full-scale meal that bread and wine were simply two of the elements that people partook of in every meal. And that the church, it seems, in Corinth, once a week after the uh, Sunday morning services or whatever their parallel was, they would all stick around and people would bring food and they'd set it out on tables and the whole church would partake of a meal together. In fact, that's where the problems came in in the Lord's uh, table in Corinth is that some people were bringing food and then they would eat it themselves and they wouldn't share it with other people who came to the, came to the uh, table hungry. And others were getting drunk on the wine that was uh, supplied. So it was obviously more, much more like a potluck than some little ritual that is worked into a service. And uh, this has expressed the life of the community, that they loved each other and the expression of this was to take meals together on a regular basis. Now, the second expression of their fellowship, Paul says, was, or Luke says, was prayers. It's in the plural. And I think what this is a reference to is that the early church was continually in prayer. 
And in this connection, which I believe is a connection with fellowship, it was prayer for each other. That when they became acquainted with needs of other people in the fellowship, they were committed to taking those needs before the Lord. If you're involved in some kind of a small group, a growth group, or a Bible study where needs are shared, then it's an opportunity for you during the week as the people in this group come to your mind to pray for the needs that have, have been shared. So those are the three expressions of fellowship, I believe, the bearing of burdens, eating together, and praying for one another. This is how the church expressed its common life and its commitment to relationships. So this is the second question that we as a church need to ask. Are we as individuals and as a body, are we committed to fellowship, to developing close, intimate relationships with other believers? Now, it strikes me that a balance is required in this area. Most churches that I've been involved in have been strong in one of these areas, but not in the other. It's rare that you will find a church that is equally devoted to the teaching of scriptures and to fellowship. Uh, many churches will have a pastor who's a very strong expositor, and the church may be extremely well taught, but there may be very little body life. It may be a cold, impersonal, even judgmental sort of church. On the other hand, some churches are pastored by men who are shepherds at heart and love people and instill the spirit of caring in their fellowships, but they themselves may not be good teachers. And so the church is a loving church, but it's a largely untaught church. What makes the church strong is when there was a commitment to both of these. These are the two pillars on which the, uh, the church rests or the two legs on which it runs. And as we're aware, if you exercise one leg and not the other, the other one will begin to atrophy and it won't be long before you will limp. And that's the case in the church today. It limps because it's weak in one of these two areas of life. So these are the two priority commitments then, a commitment to the word and a commitment to people. I liken the commitment to the word to the digestive process that it's necessary for the human body to, to take in food, to be uh, nourished. Without the nourishment, it will quickly become weak. But the fellowship I liken to the circulation process, that unless the, this nourishment is circulated to the limbs and to the extremities of the body, the body quickly, regardless of the amount of nourishment it takes in, will become weak. Now Luke goes on, I believe, in 43 to 47 to trace the five results of this commitment to these two activities. Now as I read verses 43 to 47, be alert to the verb uh, tenses that Luke uses here. He uses verb tenses which imply that the activity he's describing took place continually in the life of the church. These weren't just isolated instances or a short burst like a Roman candle that a lot of glory and then it faded. But these was, this was the consistent ongoing practice in the early church. Start in verse 43. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity. The word sincerity probably better translated generosity there in the end of verse 46. Taking their meals with gladness and generosity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, 
those who were being saved. Now, the first result I see in the first half of verse 43 was that there was a continual sense of God's presence, a continual sense of expectancy. Literally, that first phrase is that fear was occurring to every soul, if you have a marginal notation in your New American Standard. I think awe is a good way to translate that. And I believe this is referring to their attitude toward God, that they'd seen enough of what God could do in response to their commitment to these things that they realized that God was an awesome God, or in today's parlance, he was totally awesome. And they were overwhelmed with this sense of his greatness and his power. And there was a fear, there was a healthy respect and reverence for God. God was not someone you could put in a box or twist around your finger, but he was the Lord, he was the sovereign, he was the one that was in control. In terms of the Narnia Chronicles, he was not a tame lion. And they knew that, they realized that. And there was this continuous sense that God was present among them and working among them. Now, the second result is very closely tied to the first. That's the end of verse 43, that many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. That the second uh, result was that there was these continuous displays of God's power in their midst to do remarkable things that no one expected. So wonders and signs are a reference to miracles of divine origins. People were being healed and people were being raised from the dead. Now, we don't have apostles with us anymore. These were apostolic signs. They were signs that confirmed that these men were commissioned by the Lord because they did exactly the same things that Jesus did. And as the apostolic era ended, then I believe these apostolic signs faded with them. Not that God still cannot, in isolated cases, do these wonders and miracles. But today, I believe, the way this is expressed is in... Uh, primarily in the area of relationships and personal righteousness, that God is able to do dramatic things in the lives of his people, heal broken marriages that people thought were beyond uh, repair and reconcile relationships that were broken and enable people by God's power to overcome habits that had gripped them for years. And this was a continuous thing that they experienced, these displays of God's power. The third thing in verses 44 and 45, the third result was that there was a continuous sharing of material goods. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Luke goes on in chapter 4 to tell us that there was not a needy person among them that if they'd had uh, welfare and Medicare and unemployment compensation, they wouldn't have needed it. There wasn't a single needy person in their fellowship because, as Luke put it in chapter 4, not anyone was claiming that anything belonging to him was his own. That the attitude that the early church had toward their material possessions is that these do not belong to me, but they belong to my family. They belong to my brothers and sisters. And they're available to be sold or auctioned off, as the case may be, to meet the needs of people in our fellowship. Now, it sounds a little bit like uh, communism, doesn't it? Uh, from each according to ability and to each according to need. Well, the vast difference between that political system and the lifestyle that's talked about by Luke here is that this is voluntary. The church wasn't coerced into doing this. They weren't required to do this. But this was a willing, voluntary expression of their heart of love for their brothers and sisters. Now, I think this is what Jesus is talking about in uh, Matthew 19 when he says that if you've left 
houses and farms, and he goes on to talk about brothers and sisters and children and parents and so forth. He says, if you've left them, you will receive back a hundred times as many houses and farms in this present age. He doesn't say that's something you have to wait for, but that's a promise that you can claim now. I think this is what he was talking about, is that when you become a member of God's family, then you no longer own your own home, but in reality, you share in the homes of all of God's people. And uh, you're able to uh, be entertained in their home just as if it was your home. We've made ourselves at home at uh, John and Amy Barnes' house now for the last uh, three years, and we really make ourselves at home. We spill coffee on their carpet and <laughs> leave popcorn strewn all over the floor when we, uh, when we leave. It's just like that's our home, and they've made us feel just, as, just like that uh, home is as much ours as it is there. And that's the attitude that activated and motivated this, the early church. Remember Ray Steadman one time, I think I've told the story before, but he was speaking at a conference in another city, and uh, in the hotel room he, there was a little coffee maker. And each morning he got up and he was able to plug this thing in and had a fresh, steaming hot cup of coffee. And he thought to himself, boy, I do a lot of traveling. This would be a dandy little device to take with me. And in fact, you know, that'll fit right in the corner of my suitcase. And so he briefly toyed with the idea of ripping off this uh, coffee maker until his, uh, until the spirit got a hold of him. And uh, he uh, refused to, to pilfer it, but he told a story the next Sunday in church. And the next week, a dozen little coffee makers <laughs> showed up in his office as people uh, gave willingly. So uh, Ray, the next uh, Sunday, got up and told him how grateful he was for this expression of generosity. And then he went on to say, you know, I've been in a number of homes this week and I've seen a lot of really nice color TVs. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, the next week he had to get up and tell him how disappointed he was in the uh, fellowship. Another time, a friend of mine, uh, Eric Sigward, became a believer in college and uh, David uh, Roper uh, discipled him. And Eric got this beautiful new sweater for Christmas one year. And David simply admired it one day and said, Eric, that's a beautiful sweater. And Eric said, uh, you like it? You can have it. And he peeled it right off his back and handed it to him uh, on the spot. Well, it's that sort of willingness to share, that kind of generosity, that spirit which activated the early church. Now, coincidentally, today is the day that we collect the fellowship fund offering. This is an offering which uh, we collect as a fellowship in order to meet the needs of needy people in our midst, those who have material needs. That's what it's earmarked for, and that's the only thing that we use it for. And this is a way that we as a body can express the same commitment to the people in our midst who have needs, is by giving willingly and voluntarily to this fellowship fund. And that comes up each uh, once a month when we do communion, and I would encourage you to think about making this a regular part of your giving to meet the material needs of people in our midst. Many of you are aware of the Philippines Fund that uh, Chris Hedges established. Chris spent the summer in uh, the Philippines ministering in two churches there which are very impoverished, by, particularly by American standards, cannot afford to have a pastor of their own, have no place to meet, and it's a sizable fellowship. And so we've begun a Philippines Fund, and you can contribute to this fund uh, simply by uh, making a note on the check that you send into the church that you would like this money to go to help this uh, poverty-stricken church in another part of, of the world. Now, the fourth expression of their fellowship, or the fourth result of their life together, is in verse 46 and 47. 
day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together, as we've already pointed out, with gladness and generosity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The fourth result was that there was a unity and a joy in their fellowship. They met together with one mind, one impulse, despite their differences in theology and political outlook. When they came together as believers, these differences no longer mattered. They were activated with one mind, one spirit, one impulse. Many of you watched in the Olympics last summer the synchronized swimming gold medal won by a couple of uh, American women. One of the up-close and personal profiles I did about these two women indicated that out of the pool they were as different as they could possibly be. One was very outgoing and effervescent, the life of the party, like outdoor sports, like jogging and bicycling and cross-country. And the other was shy, retiring, uh, loved to curl up at home in front of a fire with a good book. Totally different personalities out of the pool, but in the pool they had subordinated those differences and they acted as if they were one, motivated by one impulse. Now, that's a picture of the kind of life that Luke is talking about here where our common life together in Christ far outweighs any differences in opinion or theology or outlook or economic or wardrobe differences or race or color. That's one, one mind and one spirit that motivated this early church. And there was a gladness, Luke says, about their fellowship together. And that's a bit of a weak translation, actually. Exuberance or exaltation would be a better translation. There was a sense of excitement in belonging to this fellowship. That uh, involvement in church activity wasn't just a sort of a dry ritual that was done out of a sense of obligation. But people couldn't wait to come together because if they didn't meet, they're afraid they would miss something because of the remarkable things that God was doing in their midst. There's one other thing I want to point out about verse 46, and that is to have you observe where the early church met. They met in the temple and from house to house. That there were two places in which the early church met. One was in the temple precincts, and Luke here is probably thinking of the eastern part of the temple precincts, Solomon's porch, it's called elsewhere in Luke a big open area where this entire church of 3,000 people could gather in one time if necessary and be taught and lift their voices in praise to God. And yet even the early church realized there was a need for the church to meet in smaller home groups. And they met regularly on this basis as well, not just the large group Sunday morning meetings like we have, but smaller groups in private homes similar to our growth groups or our women's Bible studies or small group discipleship groups and that sort of thing. They realized that all the work of the ministry could not be done on Sunday morning, that there was a need for these smaller groups for the real circulation of nourishment to the body to take place. And they consistently did that together. This was Luke. This was Paul's own philosophy of ministry. He tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he reminds them that when I was with you, I taught you publicly, that is in large group settings, and from house to house. So Paul the Apostle, the mighty Apostle himself, regularly, everywhere he went, taught not just on Sunday morning meetings, but also in home Bible studies throughout the week. Now, the fifth expression, or the fifth result of their commitment to, those, to the teaching and to people was that there was a continuous stream of new converts. Continuous evangelism was taking place. This is what Luke refers to in verse 47. 
the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. He said the church had favor with all the people. That uh, as the people in Jerusalem saw the way they loved each other, saw the unity that characterized them despite their differences, saw that there was not a needy person in this fellowship because of the love that they shared for one another. They had a great deal of respect for the church and they were drawn to the church just like people on a cold night would be drawn to a blazing fire. It was a place to, a, a place to get warm and to take off the, the chill of the night air. And so people began thronging to, uh, to this church and evangelism was one of the things that characterized them. But what I want you to observe is that Luke lists this as the last of the results of their ongoing commitment. And he says specifically that the Lord was adding to their numbers. In other words, evangelism was the Lord's responsibility. The implication is if the church would take care of being the church, it would go about the business of focusing on being the church, that the Lord would take care of evangelism. And he would bring them in in a steady sort of stream. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, the German philosopher Nietzsche once said to Christians, he says, I would be a lot more inclined to believe in your Savior if you looked a lot more saved. And I think that's a good expression. That our business is not just to look saved, but to be saved, to help each other experience the saving grace of God. And then it's the Lord's business to add to our numbers those who are being saved. Uh, some of you may have read the book Walk Across America, a story about a young man disillusioned right out of the hippie movement in the early 70s who set out to walk in t across the entire uh, United States. And he started out uh, disillusioned and bitter, really looking for himself. And by the end of his walk, he had become a believer. And the reason, he indicated, was that the people he expected to be the most antagonistic to him turned out to be the most loving. He would go through small farm communities, uh, where typical redneck farmers, at least in his opinion, typical redneck farmers, uh, would be the basic staple of population. And having no place to eat or sleep, he would knock on a farmhouse door. Long, scraggly uh, hair, beard, uh, probably hadn't washed in a couple of days. And he found that over and over again, to his surprise, he was warmly received and people loved him and brought him in and fed him and gave him work and took care of him. And he began to see a common denominator that each one of these people were believers. The people that treated him like this were able to set aside these prejudices and the, the uh, attitudes that would normally characterize them in order to reach out and extend their love to this unkempt uh, man. And by the end of the walk, he was sold on the program, and he himself had become a believer and even managed, he said, to get his testimony into National Geographic. So they think it's the first time it's ever been done, but they couldn't, they couldn't keep it out. In, in uh, the Olympics last year, another vivid picture I have, another vivid memory of that, is the contrast between the winner of the women's marathon and uh, Gabriella Anderson, the woman from Sun Valley. You're very familiar with this. Uh, Joan Benoit uh, striding firmly and steadily to the finish line with the reserves left over, and Gabriella Anderson coming into the Coliseum and staggering uh, in agony around that track, taking four-plus minutes to complete just 400 and and 40 yards, a distance that most of us could walk a mile in that same kind of time. I, both of those women, their bodies were receiving the same signals from the head. The head was giving the same signals to the rest of the body. But in Joan Benoit's case, the body was responding, and the picture was a fluid uh, strength, steady and consistent. In Gabriella Anderson's case, the body wasn't responding to the signals, and so it lurched 
around a track. And it struck me that's a picture of what, of what so often is the case in the church today, that when the church is, is lurching about and eliciting more sympathy from the world and admiration, it's because we have not responded to signals from the head. I think the signals here are clear, and if we respond to them, then we become a picture of that marathon runner uh, with, with strength and firmness and steadiness moving toward the goal that God has called us. I think the signals here are clear. God has called us to be committed to the scriptures uh, and to people. And if we will depend on his resource to be this kind of fellowship, then we will indeed be a, like a mighty army rather than the mighty turtle. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you've given us such a simple pattern to follow. That, uh, success in the kingdom is not complicated or complex, but it's uh, simple. And we pray that you would motivate us to be the kind of people that Luke describes, to be the sort of church that this New Testament church was, that we might uh, be the kind of people who will be a hospital for sinners and be characterized by a commitment to the scriptures and personal righteousness in our own lives. And we trust you to be the one that adds to our fellowship day by day those that are being saved as they respond to the warmth and the love and the righteousness that they, they see in us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.